Well, hello, I'm Rick Dancer. Welcome to Get Real with Rick Dancer. And tonight we're talking timber, we're talking forest fires, we're talking how you fight forest fires, who fights forest fires, because I think there's times when you think there's just this magic little group of people that come out of nowhere and, and, and fight fires, but there really is a plan, there's a program, um, and a lot of it comes from the timber, starting at the beginning, it comes from the timber industry itself. Um, so we're gonna talk about that. Um, I'm gonna bring Matt Hill on here. So Matt, how you doing, buddy? Great. Thanks for having me, Rick. Oh, man, you are welcome. So Matt is with Douglas Timber Operators, and uh, they sponsor shows that we're, Matt put, is it, he's also, not only is he like the, you know, the guy there, he's also a, a, a video producer of his own right. And I'm, I'm saying, because I do this for a living, you do a really good job. Thank you. Um, so this is a whole series that you produced on Archie Creek. And what are we going to look at tonight? So tonight's segment looks at the the attack of the fire, uh, particularly in the first 48 hours and, and how uh, the timber industry and, and the local fire protective association, which is through the state of Oregon in a partnership with forest landowners, um, were on the front lines and, and really dealing with this catastrophic wind driven event and, and the incredible resources brought when you have timber infrastructure locally to do that. Why is that so important that people understand that, Matt, for you? Well, I, I think in Western Oregon, particularly in Southwest Oregon, we have all this heavy machinery and, and you'll see that in the, in the video. So we have bulldozers and feller bunchers and loggers and people on equipment who can go out and put a line around the fire. And, and if you don't have that, you're waiting for federal resources to, to get through a national priority system and, and see how you rank on that. And, if there's fires somewhere else, you might not be getting the resources you need unless you have that local industry. And if it's on private land, then they're they're out there fighting that thing. Because if it happens on a forest service land, sometimes they don't do much, um, especially in the beginning. And you guys want to get it. Your people want to get that get the people on the ground and get this stuff put out. Absolutely, they they have a, a an interest in doing it, and and also in the 2020 fires in Western Oregon. They were moving so quick that the vast majority of acres burned in the first 48 hours. And so that initial attack, you know, building fire lines was was critical, not not so much what happened three weeks later when when, you know, bigger crews from around the country came in to mop it up. OK, so um, also sponsoring our show tonight is Chris Daniel Family Dentistry, Dr. Michael Bratlin, a big supporter of what the timber industry is doing. And uh, he's another sponsor. Let's play the video and then we'll bring our other guests on and we'll see what's going on. All right. Here we go. The Douglas Forest Protective Association, or otherwise known as DFPA, is a uh, protective association that is formed by local landowners, uh, timber owners uh, originally. It was formed in 1912, and for 100 years we've been providing wildland fire protection on private and public lands here in Douglas County. In the course of a uh, fire season, we are able to staff 20 engines. We have three dozers, one 20-person hand crew, we actually own our own fixed wing aircraft for uh, aerial observation and managing aircraft uh, air attack platform. We also contract other aviation resources of medium 
size helicopters. In my 37 years um, of wildland fire experience, this fire was probably in the, in the top one or two um, fires that moved rapidly and, it, and had extreme conditions that I you know was able to to monitor. What eventually happened is is a 50 to 100 year event that most folks don't get to experience in their career. I had never experienced a, a fire incident um, like what turned out to be Archie. This fire uh, took off uh, just like a rocket and um, you know those bent columns just means it's throwing out spots ahead of it. The, the fuels were receptive because they were dried all through the night and um, and we, we started trying to fall back and grab an anchor point as this thing gained momentum. Uh, when the story's written on this fire in the first 24 hours, they had almost 80,000 acres burnt. I had no idea fire could move that fast. The, the intensity of this fire up the North Thumpqua was, was unlike uh, any fire that I've, I've ever been involved in or, or witnessed. Um, ever. Not only was the intensity of it something I had never witnessed, but the speed in which it moved was was just phenomenal. I rolled my window down at one point and listened to it and it sounded like a fighter jet taking off. In two days there were more acres burned on the Archie Creek than in the hundred year history of the Douglas Forest Protective Association. All through the foothills of the Cascades, uh, there were multiple fires uh, doing the same thing. And so knowing you're going into a battle and there is nobody to help you, uh, that the system is overwhelmed within a matter of, you know, hours, uh, was a challenge that we were, we were prepared to face. But there were no instant management teams available right out of the gate. So we were going to have to order in a federal team which uh, we have never done that before in the history of DFPA, to my knowledge. Uh, the first team that came in was here for a short period of time, first federal team. They were a level two team. Clearly this was a level one fire. Uh, there was fires going on all over the West and there was just a lack of teams available. Uh, we're limited on resources availability because as you look in the news, all the fires going on uh, within Oregon and Washington really stretches us thin. But the real fire suppression that came wasn't the incident management teams that come in. They're just there to manage the logistics, bring order to chaos. The real uh, fire suppression effort came from our industrial component here in Douglas County. Industrial landowners bring a unique expertise, and that is um, heavy equipment. You know, they, they, bring, they, they have those resources as part of Oregon's complete and coordinated system. And so they're bringing dozers and excavators. They're bringing um, feller bunchers and, and forwarders to move the wood off the line. They actually deployed a tethered logging system. One of the key reasons, uh, resources that we're using that's helping us do that is the local timber companies are working with us on a daily basis and help them providing, providing uh, resources, uh, big equipment, heavy equipment that's very effective in, in this uh, vegetation uh, to contain the fire. We're part of this 
what in Oregon is called the complete and coordinated system of fire prevention and, and, and fire response. Our company and our employees worked really hard uh, and were integrated with the fire team to put this fire out and the smoke hadn't even cleared and our employees at Lone Rock um, and a lot of the contractor base across Douglas County was immediately back out here um, to start the recovery effort of removing the wood, building the roads, replacing the culverts. Uh, immediately private industry was fighting the fire and I would say that they were the most effective and out there first and guys risking their lives and their own personal time as well, um, sacrificing that so that they could put the fire out as quickly as they could or at least stop the fire and, and get a line established. If it wasn't for the industrial component, um, we wouldn't have gotten a line around this. On this fire on Archie Creek, we were engaged immediately and began line construction uh, just north of Glide. And ultimately we built a fire trail from the ranches around Glide all the way over the ridge uh, down and connected it into uh, the areas east of Sutherland. So we initially brought on a lot of heavy equipment in uh, feller bunchers, log loaders, dozers, in order to establish and broaden uh, the initial containment, outside containment lines. We were less focused on front suppression at that point, but it was to get the major containment lines in where we already had road infrastructure in place. We've got the best firefighting system in, in the world. Um, I've personally been a part of that um, the majority of my career. Probably nowhere in the world do you have an industrial property owner, landowner group like we have here that is so practiced in fighting fire and has uh, committed so much resource to going and putting out fires. Uh, and it's amazing to watch and each and every time we have one of these bigger fires, there's better coordination, uh, there's better firefighting, they're certainly more skilled and they are quicker to react and do much, uh, much of the firefighting as the federal team was getting organized, uh, they were already organized and out fighting the fire. And joining me now, Matt Hill. And Brennan is from Lone Rock Timber Company, and Brennan is on the far. I don't know how to describe that screen. If this is the Brady Bunch, we'd have two more in the middle, and then I'd be I'd understand or Hollywood Squares. But Brennan is down there in the corner, and Tim Freeman, a county commissioner from Douglas County, also uh, in the piece tonight uh, down there as well. So Matt, why is it so important that local timber companies that they're out there that fast, that out there on the scene doing this work? Well, there, there's a couple of reasons, you know, in my mind, one is, uh, you know, they, they've got resources to protect and, and their, their timber inventory, uh, they're out in the woods. They're usually, you know, spotting some of these fires. They know what's going on. They know the terrain, they know they're trained, um, how to do this. Uh, but also in Oregon, and, and I'd love to get, you know, the commissioner and Brennan's input on this too, is in Western Oregon, we have a checkerboard ownership pattern between BLM and private timberlands for, for millions of acres. And so you've got to have some type of seamless approach and, and our firefighting system for, for the federal BLM lands in Western Oregon is, is worked out with the state of Oregon and private industry so that you have one system for fighting 
any fire um, that happens in that checkerboard checkerboard ownership. So Tim, talk to me about that checkerboard ownership. That's got to be kind of a pain in the butt too, I would guess. Well, um, these ONC lands so that are managed by the BLM are unique timberlands uh, in the United States, maybe in the world, and that they are roughly every other section, so every other square mile uh, of publicly owned and privately owned lands. And like all management on these lands, uh, deciding you know that there's a sort of a line on a map of, of ownership doesn't matter to the to the fire doesn't matter to habitat it doesn't matter to a lot of things so when these fires hit um, the idea of everybody working together is crucial and this fire specifically as fast as it was moving it was going from ONC federal land to private land and back really quickly uh, the good news is, is for a very long time, the BLM uh, has contracted uh, fire management on these ONC lands with the state of Oregon, and that is a coordinated system, and they do work in conjunction with each other, and it works very well. Uh, the Archer Creek fire also happened to include some Forest Service land also, so you had lots of different jurisdictions, different landowners, uh, and um, that all kind of melted away in those initial hours and the industry folks just went out and started putting the fire out. So Brennan, um, how much, how much land did you guys lose? Did Lone Rock Timber Company lose in this fire? Uh, specifically in the Archie Creek fire, it was over 6,000 acres. Um, we had other, some other fires uh, that happened elsewhere that also burned on us down further in the Medford area. Some that didn't make the news uh, quite like these did. Well, and at the time I was evacuated from Camp Creek and you guys own a lot of land across the, the place for me because they gave me permission to go up there and hike. <laughs> so I know, but yeah. you had, to, what, what is that like for your company when this fire's breaking out? I mean, I know Dan Justina and people like that. It's like, you know, this is so, fr you're going, oh my God, this is not just, um, I think most people think, oh, it's the Forest Service land that's burning up. It's like there's this is this is your business. You have how many employees that work there? Um, you know, you're you're looking at um, your career. Yeah, and that's absolutely right. I mean, when when private lands, when our working forests, you know, it's a tree farm. We're growing fiber, and uh, just like any natural disaster, when that fire starts, it's it's a bit of a heart wrenching feeling. Um, but one of the reasons that we and our company engages so um, in-depthly with Oregon Department of Forestry and the Fire Protection Associations is because we can go out there and, and help uh, be a part of the action to, to put those fires out, to put lines around those fires. You know, it, like you said, it is our career. It's, uh, it's our livelihood. It's, it's our, it's, and it's our passion, truthfully. It's, it's hard to watch your passion go up in flames. Right. And people, I don't think, understand that very much. How how frustrating is it for you um, as a private, yeah, I, I mean, I know it's not you, but your company as private landowners. So you go in and you clear up your land and you take care of it. And you get the, you know, you thin and, and keep it all clean. And, you know, you, I, I guess we could make this like a, uh, there's no um, uh, HOAs when you're in the timber industry. So you have an HOA in a neighborhood and the neighbors have to keep their property up. So there's no HOA in the timber world. So you guys keep your property up and you're getting the, the, the crap out so that it's not gonna be uh, more susceptible to a wildfire. 
But then the Forest Service and the BLM, whose land's right next door to yours, they're not doing the same thing. So you can do all you want to get to make your property more risk uh, risk free. But when the neighbors aren't keeping theirs up, that's got to be really frustrating. It is. It's, uh, you know, the best analogy I have, especially in this new age of fire that we're kind of living with is it's it's almost like uh you know it's imagine yourself on your own personal property in a neighborhood in a city and you look over the fence and your neighbor's storing dozens of gallons of cans of gasoline over there right uh it's just waiting for a spark it's waiting for something to happen um and you really have no recourse to influence them to move them away, move those, remove that fuel, reduce that risk. So it just comes down to us to responsibly managing our lands to be as fire resilient as possible. And so that keeping our roads open and clear and well-maintained, reducing our fuels, all those type of things. We do what we can do because that's really all the recourse we have these days. Okay. So let's take that one step further. So, because we can, so the neighbors are throwing fuel on the on on their property so that it's more susceptible then if you wanted to go to the county or the you know somebody to complain culture is also accepting that as the right way to do things and yours as the wrong way to do things so tim how does a, a county how do you get a handle on this where it's like to inform the public um that you, you know that that we are the, the reason August and September and, and October now in Oregon with the, uh, the the fire we just had up in near Oak Ridge. Um, do you remember when you were like 10 years ago, did you have to plan your summer vacation around fires in the West? Yes. So fires have become a huge problem, but there is ways to address this. And I would tell you that most of the public believes after these catastrophic fires, that the land is cleared and new forests are planted. And that only occurs on private property. I think most people are surprised to hear that the vast majority of the dead wood that has tremendous value, the public owns this wood, it's dead trees that, that can be milled into wood products are left to rot. And, and there's a lot of bad things that happen when that wood's left to rot. First off, it makes it unsafe for the public to be in the forest. The trees fall down. Every one of these dead trees is going to fall down. It also makes it very dangerous uh, for future fires and fuel load. Brendan just talked about, you know, the analogy of, you know, the gallons of gasoline. Well, when there's fires going on, firefighters will not go into these areas where these dead trees are standing. It is absolutely too dangerous for them to go in. So, and then, then finally, you know, we look at it um, long-term as those lands that could be in forest production, they could be growing new timber and capturing carbon and creating all those values we enjoy uh, in our forest aren't gonna happen. They are no longer in a, in a cycle of trees growing. They're now dead standing timber that'll be there you know, for decades and decades. Okay, so let me show our audience a picture that I shot yesterday here in Montana. Uh, this is lodgepole pine and this is what they these have fallen because of bug infestation, but rather than take them out and produce them into two by fours and two by sixes, um, here's what they do. So I'm gonna- we've got, we've got nice, I mean, it's, we've still got- we've I'm got gonna take the sound out. 
because I don't remember what we talked about. <laughs> but anyway, so you guys, you can see, look in there at the, so how are you going to get in there to fight a fire? And how is an elk or a herd of animals going to escape? Or have, They can't even use that because yeah, right. everything, anybody wants to comment, you can. Oh, but that so is, that, this is a great visual, but this is a different situation than what we have. So in our forest, you're talking about trees that are five or six times as big as what those yeah. are. And they're, right. and they're huge and they're tall and they have tremendous value. I mean, and that, that's the part that I think that a lot of people don't understand. They think there's a forest fire, so the trees burn up and there's no value there. Some of this big wood that burns up has value for two or three years. And you can make more money pulling those trees off than it costs to do it and plant new trees. It is a net positive to the treasury. It is a asset that can be managed. But again, it's being left for weird reasons. Uh, in, in the resource management plan on the ONC lands, it says 80% of the lands are in a reserve. In those reserves, you can't salvage after a fire. And, and there's there's no contemplation in that plan of a, of a fire as big as these are. So leaving this amount of dead wood to rot certainly isn't creating the habitat in which they were originally designated for. You know, if it's for a spotted owl, spotted owls don't live in big dead trees. You know, they live in, in live dead trees. So removing that dead wood, creating all the values of a healthy forest growing would be the right thing to do in every scenario. Instead, uh, these managing agencies, because of lawsuits uh, and because of these management plans, will walk away from uh, these forests and they're forever these dead standing snags that are just incredibly dangerous out there. So let's talk, Matt, you or Brennan, either one can pipe in here. Um, lawsuits. I don't think people understand. Our forests used to be managed by the BLM and the Forest Service. Now they're managed by the courts. Talk to me. How about it, Matt? Well, absolutely. I mean, the, the, the management plans in Western Oregon were developed, you know, primarily initially in the Clinton administration when the spotted owl issue was being sorted out. And, and since then they've been wrenched down by, by judicial decree and, and even common sense things like removing dead trees within falling distance of public roads gets challenged and, and delays the project and, and possibly um, eliminates the project so that you have hundreds of miles of roads with, with dead trees falling on them. Uh, imperiling public access. And, and so there, there's just absolutely no logic. I'm, I'm extraordinarily frustrated with, with the system and, and even good forest, federal forest managers struggle to do minimal work. And, you know, after these huge fires, 100,000 acre fires, the, the feds are, even when they try to get dead wood out, they're getting less than 1% of that, that material out. And, and what's happening, and the commissioner alluded to it, is that leaving massive amounts of dead wood in the forest on federal land, it changes fire behavior and it changes how we fight fire. So you're, you're just setting yourself up for even bigger fires when all this dead wood reburns. And that's what I'm really afraid of. So, Brennan, in a perfect world, you know what I'm going to ask. So go ahead. How does that how, give me some rubber? I hit the road thing there. Well, I mean, you know, the picture you showed there. Uh, in an ideal world with aggressive firefighting, if a fire starts away from a road, you're going to go in as close as you can and put that fire out, you know, and, and fire between the months of 
June and September, we need to extinguish those. So I'm not saying that all fire is bad because it's a, it's a natural tool for cleaning up forests and good forest management. But in the summer, with the weather conditions we have these days, you can't, you can't even begin to send a firefighter into that location to try and extinguish that fire. Instead, you have to fall back to the road that you were standing on in that photo and just try and hope and pray and do what you can to hope that it doesn't cross that road. It's just far too dangerous. And, you know, for us on the West Coast with the ginormous snag patches, you know, of hundreds, thousands of acres of just um, checkerboard ownership where every other square mile is blackened earth uh, with fuels that are the brush component, the low fuels are growing that are very receptive to fire. And then also, as Commissioner Freeman pointed out, you know, the enormous amount of dead material that's falling down that is a heavy fuel source, that's what burns incredibly hot. It's hard to put out and it's dangerous to fight fire in. So if, if you're a responsible land manager and you have that as your neighbor, it just puts everything that we work towards and everything we care about uh, and the financial well-being of our company at risk uh, to, to be next to one of those um, pieces of land. For the federal what, government. what does this do to timber to lumber prices though too because um when you when you're losing out on that much wood i don't understand why people don't i mean i can look at the house that i'm in it's not made of steel studs i mean there's no steel two by fours and two by sixes in this house and i think what's you know what is the percentage of you know i'm going to say 98 percent of people live in a stick framed house or something with wood um, where do they think that comes from? And, and, and then people bitch about the lumber prices going up. It's like, well, it's cause we're letting it rot on federal land right out here and, and all over Oregon. It's just disintegrating. And actually when it rots, decomposes, am I not right? Doesn't that create carbon? Yeah. And that's a, that's a great point. There is, you know, as the, um, social narrative and the collective consciousness around uh, carbon sequestration and, and climate change continues to grow and evolve and become a major point of the news narrative. When you salvage that dead wood, you're taking that carbon material that that has been sequestered over, you know, however many years that tree was growing and you cut it into boards and it becomes carbon storage. And they run the numbers on this, but, you know, largely you think about homes how many homes around where you live i know in douglas county we have homes that have been built for 80 to 100 years right and there's a there's an enormous amount of carbon that is stored there so salvaging this federal land uh is is frankly it's good for the environment because it's storing that carbon it's not letting it rot at, into the atmosphere as it falls down and decomposes and then it's also about reforestation. You know, Commissioner Freeman alluded to the fact that the federal government is really not salvaging nor reforesting a lot of their lands so that it's gonna take hundreds of years to return to a forest ecosystem that's really capturing carbon and storing it. So, uh, so Brennan, isn't, isn't replanting trees a way, a super effective natural way of reducing climate change? because yes. we're reducing carbon. So somewhere the narrative gets lost on some of the environmental community because the, the very thing that 
God or whoever the universe did in the beginning, whatever you believe, was put trees here to, to help with that carbon. And now we have a federal government that isn't replanting to restore the very natural carbon filter. And nobody wants to talk about that on the, on the environmental side um, because I think it screws up their narrative. But it, it, that's the truth. And then, okay, so let's go one step further. When that fire happens, I want somebody to do a study and tell me how much carbon this, the, the cedar fire, wasn't that what it called the one that just happened? How much carbon that dumped into the atmosphere over the country and the world and then compare that to how much um, how, how much carbon some of the industrial place plants in Oregon and that kind. Of, I mean, if you took just Oregon and said how much carbon came from that fire and in a year, how much carbon comes from an industry? I bet that carbon from that forest fire would would way outnumber. The yeah, there was a and Matt, maybe you can correct me on the exact data point, but uh, there was a data point at one of the major fires from 2020 in Oregon produce enough carbon and greenhouse gases to account for all of Portland's uh, automobile emissions. I think that's the direct quote. But. Yeah, the, 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 that and then all the 2020 fires that were featured in this film segment in Western Oregon, the carbon emissions from those exceeded the entire state of Oregon's carbon emissions from the entire transportation sector. So all cars, trucks, buses, trains, and all power generation. So it 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 uh, it totally wiped out and and eclipsed the emissions from other parts of, of the state. And and a recent study from UCLA looked at California emissions and found that their fires are not only doing that, but they're wiping out all the the carbon offsets that California pays extremely high amounts of money to to pay for. So. For those concerned about climate change, you can't address it without dealing from with emissions from wildfires. In, adi in addition to carbon, there's benzene, PM 2.5, some really nasty stuff that's really horrible for human health that's being emitted. We, we've been breathing smoke down here in Roseburg until about last week from that Cedar Creek fire, you know, in late October. That's that's unusual and really unhealthy. I was yeah, talking about it. Between a quarter and a third of the carbon is released during the fire, the rest of that carbon that remains on the ground is released over the next 50 to 75 years as that wood rots. So, so as bad as it is during the fire that we see that carbon because it is in the form of smoke. And so we, we can kind of rationalize or see how bad it is. The vast majority of the carbon is released later as that wood rots. And again, another good reason to go clean that wood up. And you will hear from the agencies that they replant. But the mortality on replanting uh, in, in, the, in those snag patches with the brush and other problems is a high mortality. Very few of those trees make it. And or, they, or they burn again. Yeah. Burn. And, and the other thing, you know, it's easy to kind of make a, a black and white argument of just put the fires out. But on these federal lands, it is incredibly difficult to put out the fires because of their mismanagement over the last 50, well, less than that, 30 years, right? Uh, it's about having responsible forest management so that firefighters can get in there and put those fires out. Um, that, that is the take home from all of this. And the, and the mismanagement comes because of lawsuits 
and 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 rules put on by people um, who say that they want to stop climate change, they want to stop all this stuff. But I guess I, I guess for me, if I was a guy and I'm really serious about climate change, and I realize that the very thing that I'm doing is causing it to be worse, wouldn't I be ready to negotiate or kind of come back or step back and say, hey, maybe I don't know everything I'm talking about and we need to look at some other options. If you're really serious about climate change, if you want to lock up the forest, okay, that's one thing. But if you're really serious about climate change and anybody watching this and you're, you're one of those people preaching climate change, I'm good with that. I'm fine. I, I think we do need to watch what, how we treat the earth. I mean, obviously, but if you're, if, if it, it's, it's awfully hypocritical. I mean, that's real. I mean, if, if people out there watching, if you're really honest, that's very hypocritical to be smashing your cans and, and recycling to protect the earth. And, but you'll allow, um, the forest to, to, to develop into a kinder, a tinderbox and, and then pollute the air that way. That, I, I'm, I'm sorry. You can't be one without the other. Consistency is important. <laughs> you know, you know, being consistent. what we're doing isn't working. Yeah. So maybe we need to cut bait. We're not very good at that as a culture though. It's like cut bait and start over and go. It's like, it's like, uh, I'm going to bring something up and this is not reflective on the timber industry at all, but, um, I think I'm okay doing this. It's, it's like measure 110, you know? Okay, you know, Oregonians approved it. Now it hasn't worked. We're letting people use drugs and it's killing them. It's killing our communities. It's destroying our, it's bringing fentanyl in. It's, it's not doing what it was supposed to do. So it's time to cut bait. And then I hear one of the candidates running for governor saying, well, we just need to give it more time. No, 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 no. Okay, you know what? Cut the, stop quit the madness, move forward, go do something else because you don't just keep doing, going round and round. That's the definition of insanity. Um, yeah. Jim, one last thing for you. Um, as, a, as a political leader um, in our state and in your county, what, what, can, what can people watching this do? I mean, what do they need to do? So we are continuing to work on ways to fix this problem. Some of that is legislative in nature, but some of it is through the very legal system that you've been describing. So the Association of ONC Counties, uh, one of the Timber Trade Associations, AFRC, filed lawsuits on the ONC Resource Management Plan in 2016. We won those lawsuits. Basically, the court agreed with us. These are federal lawsuits in Washington, D.C. The court agreed that you can't take large blocks of land and put in reserve. So the 80% that they have in reserve doesn't follow the ONC Act, and they have to manage for sustained yield. So the sustained yield amount of these lands, these lands grow about 1.2 billion board feet a year, these 2.1 million acres in Western Oregon, and that the, the managing agency, the BLM, has to manage uh, as Congress intended. So we've won that lawsuit. It's, it's in an appeal uh, phase right now, but there was not a stay on uh, the court order, so they are developing a new resource management plan um, and hopefully following the court's order to do the management correctly. And uh, this was the first time counties have sued the federal government on this land management issue. And it didn't come easy for us. It was not uh, for our member counties. Um, it's not the easiest thing to use taxpayer dollars to sue taxpayers. I mean, that's basically what you're doing is your county government suing federal government. Uh, but they left us no choice. The the way the resource management plan is, 
and, and what it's doing to our counties and our forests uh, that are in our counties uh, is horrible and we had to do something. So that's one remedy that we're working on right now that could make things better. Matt, last word. <laughs> like the commissioner said, I mean, we, we, we need an entirely different approach and, and we are, it is hard to change path with the set of tools and court decisions that federal land managers have. And, and if Congress doesn't change things, uh, it'll have to happen in court. But but we're, we're fighting a losing battle against fire now, and we can dump billions of more dollars at it, but we don't seem to be getting uh, making any progress. Wow. All of a sudden on my page here, like there were no comments. And then now there's like guy like 50. <laughs> I don't know where they were. They must be having trouble in Facebook land. Maybe people are so angry they're really coming on here, but all of a sudden it just popped up and I'm like, what in the hell is that? Rick, there's three things that cause fire. We all know this, right? It's oxygen, heat, and fuel. We're not going to take oxygen off the planet. That's good. Obviously it's getting warmer and hotter and drier. So we're not, we're not changing that much. Fuel, that's the thing we got to work on. That's the only thing we can manage to change the trajectory of these fires. So we have to manage these fuel loads. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much. That was really super interesting. And um, Matt, thanks. We'll be back next month with another episode and another discussion. And we're going to keep talking about this. And, um, you know, I, I'll have a couple parting words at the end of this. But thank you so much, you guys. That was really, um, I love this topic um, because it, it really, along with what's com coming up in two weeks with the with the voting and all that kind of stuff this could really if people got involved with this you could change this i mean i hope people are fed up with the smoke it doesn't have to be like that <laughs> you know it doesn't oregon is a beautiful state and the three most beautiful months are july august and september and it shouldn't be clouded with stupidity uh, from policies and and um and ideologies that just simply don't work. Um, so anyway, thanks you guys for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brendan. Yeah, thank you. Your right. boss, hi. All right, see you guys later. So again, you guys, what can you do? You can get involved. I mean, start educating yourself. Don't just buy into whatever they're telling you. I mean, God, you know, if if we learned anything over the last couple of years, haven't we learned that we have to do our own research? We have to be our best advocate for our state and the place that we live. If you're sick of smoke and you're sick of fire, you don't have to live with this. It's not just, oh, the earth is heating up. It, it, like Tim said, you, you get the fuel out of there. You got to get the fuel out of there. And that means change. So what these people can do um, as Oregonians is you can help support the industry and you can help support people that are fighting for it and get involved and understand what you're doing before you start talking bad about timber industry. I'm so sick of people that come up and go, oh, yeah, they're just doing that. You don't even know what the industry does anymore. Go to if, if you think that call up Matt or somebody and go take a tour of a local mill. And you see, I just went through one yesterday here in Montana and I've been through ones in Oregon as well. They use every damn inch of that log. They have these computers that go in. I wish I had the video up here that take a, a you know, a, a, a log and it measures how many two by sixes and how many two by fours you can get out of it. And then it cuts it. And then they save the bark. And then the pieces that are on the side, that goes into something else, into other kinds of products. There's not anything on that tree that's not wasted. What is wasted on every tree is when you let it sit on federal and BLM land 
and just rot away when it could be serving its purpose. My opinion, it's my show and I get to have it. Thanks for being here. Share this on your page because Facebook loves when it's a timber story to throttle them back. Um, but share this on your page. Let other people know what's going on because uh, we got to change the narrative and we can do it. It's our job if we love our state.